Pete Buttigieg loses the race for DNC chair but elevates his profile. Mike Pence's apparent hypocrisy over personal emails. That plus Luke Messer begins to ramp up towards a possible Senate bid and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending March 3rd, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the race to lead the Democratic National Committee. Buttigieg was vying for the post along with six other candidates, including Minnesota Congressman Keith Ellison and former Labor Secretary Tom Perez, who won the party's vote to lead the DNC. Buttigieg, a Harvard-educated naval reservist who served in Afghanistan during his time as mayor, dropped out in a speech delivered just before the vote. He urged his fellow Democrats not to treat the presidency like the only office that matters, and he encouraged them to pay greater attention to communities like South Bend saying his fellow Midwesterners should be treated like fellow Americans and not an exotic species. Despite his exit from the race, national pundits called Buttigieg the real winner of the day and a significant new voice within the party. What's next for Pete Buttigieg? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Kip Two, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Jennifer Hollowell, did Democrats make a mistake in not choosing Buttigieg? Yes, I, I think it's just another example of Democrats not learning from the November 8th election. By selecting a left-wing DC Beltway national leadership, I think it's just going to pull Democrats further away from middle America, which frankly is good for Republicans and Republican candidates. Did Democrats make a mistake here? Well, look, I think Pete Buttigieg has a, a very bright future. I think uh, those of us in the Democratic Party are happy that he ran, got his name out there, raised his national profile. I think Tom Perez uh, is going to be a great national chairman. I don't know what she means when she's talking about liberal. Tom was from the I mean, he was labor secretary, worked for Barack Obama. He was, he was Clinton's um, uh, choice if she had won the presidency. So I think he's sort of the establishment of the Democratic Party. And when you're running the party, you've got to have someone who knows what they're doing running the party. So I think it was, it was a good thing. But the best thing, of course, for Indiana Democrats is we've now we've got a, a rising star right here in South Bend. A rising star, but what is the next step for Pete Buttigieg? Well, I think by by raising his profile like he did, um, he's got a variety of choices. You know, people have long talked about him for potential for governor. Uh, you know, he could run for the Senate if something happens, uh, you know, next time around. It, he won't run against Joe Donnelly, but that opens that up. Um, and so I think that um, you know, he's got many options going forward, and I do think that he will only build on that because he has really acquitted himself very well in the in the process. Uh, impressed a lot of people. I mean, when you saw the profiles leading up to the vote, uh, the profiles were not about the incumbents. The profiles were not about the other candidates. They were all about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, Pete, obviously an openly gay man. Quite frankly, does that hurt him if he's trying to make the next step in Indiana politics? Uh, it, it might have, say, 10 years ago, five years ago, but as we've discussed on this show before, the, there's such a, a dramatic change and shift in, in public opinion. I'm not saying that there are those portions of Indiana and those people in Indiana who might see that as a red flag and, and, and vote accordingly, but I don't think it would be necessarily uh, the impediment that it would have been. And I agree with what's been said uh, thus far. It's 
a lot of the, after the election, a lot of the pundits nationally were talking about a lack of bench uh, depth uh, the, on, the, on the Democratic side. But what, what was uh, visible at this meeting that produced uh, the new chairman, uh, Chairman Perez, is, is that there is some talent out there. There is some uh, vigor in the party. And to have somebody from this part of the country, the Midwest, who comes from uh, the background of having run uh, a municipality where you're dealing with real-world problems and filling, you know, chuck holes, uh, potholes, <laughs> right. whatever we're calling them these days, um, that that resonates. And he doesn't have necessarily the baggage that a lot of his his counterparts in that race did, which is a big stamp with a W for Washington uh, yeah. behind it. So I think the future is bright for him. Will we see Pete Buttigieg run for something other than re-election as mayor in the next four years? I don't expect so. Uh, I think that's probably part of why he took this, um, you know, leap out and onto the national stage. So I don't expect so, but Kip probably knows better than I do. Kip, will we see him run for something else in the next four years? Well, it's hard to know. I mean, he. I think what he did was set himself up. Um, I don't think he's looking for a different kind of job. I think he thought this was an opportunity for him to um, do something he thought he would be good at, um, and I think he probably would have been very good at it. Uh, what it does show is that the Democratic Party is ready to ready to um, take on millennials and add them to our coalition. Well, you know, I think that's a good point. And I think it's also important to point out that the Democrats, uh, that the talent pool, if you will, among Democrats in Indiana is in the mayoral level. There are a number of mayors across the state who are Democrats. Uh, and if the state party wants to rebuild, they will tap that themselves. And they will make Pete Buttigieg uh, a big part of that if they're, if, they're pretty, if they're smart. And like you mentioned, John, doesn't come with the Washington insider I baggage. Think, uh, if you line it up, that's that's one of the real strengths here is yeah. that uh, in this, and particularly in this climate where every, you know, a disqualifying so factor in many cases is that you've ever had any role in Congress or, or in Washington almost in any regard, that's sort of a black mark, and, and he doesn't have that. Vice President Mike Pence used a personal email account while governor to conduct official business. At the same time, he was criticizing Hillary campaign, uh, Hillary Clinton for doing the same. A report by the Indy Star this week showed that then-Governor Mike Pence used a personal AOL account to conduct state business, including homeland security issues and other sensitive matters. And that email account was hacked last summer. All that while Pence, on the campaign trail, regularly attacked Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while Secretary of State. Pence did not appear to violate the law. Indiana allows the use of personal emails to conduct official business, and emails from Pence's personal account were retained according to protocol. Kip to a Pence spokesman says there's no comparison between what Pence did and what Hillary Clinton did. Is that yeah. fair? No, it's ridiculous for him to say it. I mean, the two, the two things are so comparable. It's such an outrage. It's such a, uh, a glaring hypocrisy for Mike Pence to spend an entire campaign criticizing someone for having a, a private email, and then he was doing it all along himself and, and knew it he was doing it all along himself. To me, it... Uh, it's a failure uh, of the national media. It's a failure of the Democratic Party, to be honest, about not not uh, seizing upon seizing upon this. Because I, I guess Maureen Grappi did a story in June that said he had uh, 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 a private email, and we did not jump on it, and neither did the national media. And I think it it might have changed the election in late had we had this discussion about Mike Pence also using uh, private email. While not breaking the law, it would certainly seem hypocritical. Is this a black mark on Mike Pence? Well, so let's back up. Not against the law at all, completely within the bounds of Indiana law. I guess I shouldn't be surprised that Kip has found outrage because Democrats are finding outrage in everything that happens these days. But it's absolutely, absolutely different things. It's like comparing apples 
to dump trucks. It's a completely different thing. Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, put a server in her home for the sole purpose of hiding emails. She was receiving classified information, national security related information, and she intentionally was hiding those emails. And in addition, she she did the bleach bit. No, she she did the the bleach (laughs) bit to destroy them so that the public and the FBI wouldn't be able to view them. Her staff used hammers to destroy phones and iPads in hopes that that information would never be found public. So, and Vice President, then Governor Pence, number one, was completely within the law in doing so. He was emailing to state accounts, which makes those emails discoverable to state accounts, to state employees. And then he also went the extra mile to hire a firm to go through all of his private emails and take anything that had to do with state business and transfer it and archive it so that it can be discovered by the state. And every elected official I know has a private email account. And you would say the same thing. And they should have one so that they can conduct political business. So this is absolutely ridiculous to compare. To say the two things are comparable is absolutely ludicrous. He conducted public business on his private email, which is all Hillary Clinton did. No, he wasn't receiving classified information. And what she did was was against the law. They're very different. No, there wasn't. The FBI cleared her. I don't know whether you were paying attention or not, but they even went back in at the end of the election and cleared her twice. In the report. <laughs> John, John Schwannis, I want to ask you about, as, as always, politics is perception. Um, quite frankly, though, given that there's so much other controversy surrounding the Trump administration, does this even register much of a blip? It's interesting that you say that, because when this broke uh, this week, uh, I had the same thought. If this were a quote-unquote normal uh, news, news period, and I don't know what normal is anymore, I guess that's... But back in the olden days... Something like last this, June. that's right, yesterday or last <laughs> week, would have been something that really resonated. And it, and it may, because the storyline is, is appealing. Uh, I, you're right, Jennifer, that the techni- technically this is not illegal, but I think the legalities of this get lost in the court of public opinion, which, as, you're, as you suggest, uh, has much more to do. Close to it much had to, to do. Well, the problem is, the shorthand is, we heard so much during the during the, the presidential campaign about emails, private emails, and so now you hear, guess who had a private email and used it to deal with with agency heads and so forth. That's really a lot about he, all a lot of voters need to know is the sense that there was, was a glass house here and I had some stones in my hand, and when I'm in that so glass Hillary. house, I should I, be I, very I, I, careful. That's, he's emailing that's their a distinction without a difference. Hillary no. Clinton was emailing people with on, no, on, it's on also very too. different situations. I think, the public, I think the public sees it as the same because it is. Well, the quaint thought no, they, here is the public what if, may see that if, if it's presented that way. But if the shoe is on the other foot, and if this was a Democrat media darling, this story wouldn't be presented the way it is. Well, but the it's only reason, the reason people, I, there's no doubt that the, the laws were set up the way they were. That if you are the governor of the state of Indiana, your the, the activities you conduct in the furtherance of your job are supposed to be subject to public scrutiny and review, yeah. and this made that more difficult. Whether whatever his intention was or not. The other thing is we haven't seen all of the, the, uh, the emails, which if you want to make a story stretch, and the, the reason this may actually have more legs than, than uh, the, the blip on the, the screen is the notion that we haven't seen everything, and if in fact we end up seeing more that somehow suggests, well, anything's possible in this, this climate. Uh, is this something we'll still be talking about uh, for a while, or is this one that's going to go away after the next 
revelation out of D.C. Yeah, I don't think it'll go away, but it'll become part of the litany. And that's the thing that, that seems to be the case is, you know, there's this litany of, okay, there's this, this, and this. It started with the Hillary Clinton situation. She did this, 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 and this. Now we have it with the president, this, 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 and this. And I think this will become part of that. Uh, I do think that, that uh, perception does matter here. And I do think that you're right, Jennifer, uh, about the technicalities of the case. But it does look bad when the governor was one of the most vocal critics of Hillary Clinton for having a private email and using it, and then he does the same thing. You can argue, and I think rightly so, about the distinction, but the public's, uh, I think, perception is going to be it's a distinction without a difference. They're very different situations, though, and what I'm saying is we, we, we should be honest with the public Jen, and tell we, we them about the differences, not act like, not present this as if this is the same the thing, the which it is, is not. Mike Pence criticized her all over and over and over. The Republicans said, lock her up for what she did. By the way, what she did didn't violate any law. The FBI cleared her twice. So you try to make a distinction about it when there isn't one. Six Will we see the rest of her emails? Will we see the rest of his, though? Yeah. Yes, that's what I'm saying. He's gone the extra mile above and beyond what he, he hired has hired a to private firm. To we don't know which ones are so that they he are didn't by want the us state. to see. And one All right. We'll never see moving, moving on. Sixth District Republican Congressman Luke Messer appears closer to making a bid for U.S. Senate. Rumors of a potential Messer bid to challenge Democrat Joe Donnelly in 2018 have been swirling for months. This week, the former state legislator and Indiana GOP executive director made a notable campaign hire, bringing in Matt Hum as political director. Hum most recently served in that same role for Todd Young's successful Senate bid. Messer also released a video response to President Donald Trump's joint address to Congress, praising Trump's bold agenda. But most importantly, I appreciated President Trump's call to action and sense of urgency. It is great to see our nation dreaming big dreams again. These are exciting times, and we're ready to get to work for the American people. Fourth no, District Congressman Todd Rakita has also expressed some interest in running for the Senate, and the race's first official GOP entrant is Mark Hurt, an attorney and former Dan Coates staffer. John Chuanis, will it be Messer versus Donnelly in 2018? Would be that. That's, that sounds like a matchup. Uh, that is certainly logical. I mean, you have people who would be, uh, and that's the kind of race you want to see if you're a, a Hoosier voter. You have two very credible, very legitimate, very smart people who are committed to public service. You know, public service isn't a dirty word in, in my book anyway, and, and I hope it isn't in most people's book. And these people, um, that's a good thing for, for Hoosiers. Uh, what we see other, what we have seen other Republicans certainly, uh, he, you know, Luke Messer would not be the first to enter the field, as we noted on this show, I think, yeah. uh, a few weeks back. Right. And, and there may be some others uh, that are interested. Uh, for the sake of, since Joe Donnelly goes into this, I think, this, the favorite, uh, Republicans, I presume, would hope that there is not a, a, a contentious primary. Because even though state chairs will always sit here and say, if you have a primary, you always say, God, that's great, because now we can ha be battle-tested and, and we can hone our message, which is all a bunch of hooey. You'd much rather uh, save, save, your money. save your money, not have to expend it, not have uh, your candidate open to opposition research, not only by the person on the other side the of the party of, uh, the aisle, but also by your own brethren. Messer versus Donnelly? Yes. I mean, look, he's um, the big name in the, in the race. It would take an attack from the right, to, I think, to take him out. And I don't think you can mount that attack credibly. So I, I think that uh, that's going to be the race come 18. 
Does Luke Messer, Luke Messer give Republicans the best chance to beat Joe Donnelly? Well, I don't know. I, th I disagree with both these guys. I think that it's going to be uh, potentially a more wide-open race. I think Curtis Hill's taking a strong look at it. He's the attorney general. He got more votes than anybody else in the state of Indiana in the last election cycle. And I, and I don't think it's the typical uh, race that you're looking at where it's someone's got to move to his right. Someone has to move to Trump. And I don't think Luke Messer is necessarily a Trump Republican, and everybody's got to remember that Donald Trump is now the face of the Republican Party. So if Curtis Hill says, I'm Trump's guy, and potentially it's something somebody Trump would uh, climb on board with because they have a lot in common, and it's a chance for Donald Trump to reach out to a constituency that he doesn't have the ability to reach out to now. And so I think it's very possible that if Curtis Hill gets in this race, Luke Messer has a big race on his hands. Will it be Luke Messer? Well, I tend to think so. I mean, he certainly, Congressman Messer has a, a strong conservative record in Congress and prior to that and rose quickly into leadership both in the State House and in Congress. And he's the one who's been out front making a lot of public moves right. uh, in this direction. You mentioned the hiring of Matt Hom, who's a, a great field guy, going to be political director. He also hired Emily Daniels, who was Congresswoman Jackie Walorski's campaign manager. She brings a lot of talent to that team in fundraising and uh, and in political work. So, I mean, he's he's definitely outpacing everyone right now, making the moves toward that, and there's a lot of buzz in Republican circles. You know, it, and Kip hit on the right thing, I think. It is Donald Trump. We don't know how popular he'll be. If that's seen as a, you know, the tails, the coattails are long and you want to jump on, great, but it also might be a it the lead and bill that's yeah, tied to your... Uh, which would set it up nicely. In which case, you don't want to be think, associated with it. I think it sounded yeah. like Kip wanted to run the Curtis Hill campaign. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wants that to happen pretty badly. He's rooting for a primary for us. Time, uh, time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, will Republican Luke Messer be Democrat Joe Donnelly's challenger in the 2018 election? A, yes. B, no, Messer won't run. Or C, no, Messer will lose the GOP primary. Last week's question, should Indiana's superintendent of public instruction be appointed rather than elected? 24% say yes, compared to no at 76%. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. A bias crimes bill died a quiet death this week in the Indiana Senate. Monday morning, Indianapolis's Jewish Community Center was evacuated after a bomb threat, making Indiana one of 11 states to experience such threats at Jewish centers in the last 24 hours. Less than seven hours later, a bill to enhance penalties for such crimes died on the Senate floor. Bill author Republican Sue Glick didn't call the bill onto the floor for amendments, and because the deadline to do so was Monday, the bill can't advance this session. In a statement, she says she couldn't find consensus on the measure's path forward. That comes amid significant opposition from religious conservative groups. John Ketzenberger, this is not the first year that this bill has failed. Is it forever doomed? Well, you can't say forever, but it sure this sure seemed like the year that it would it would move. There was a lot of momentum behind it, um, and so the fact that it didn't even get out of the first house, um, I think, was a little surprising. And uh, I think that does mean it'll be a while before it does get enough traction to become law. Obviously, coincidental timing, but it, it, the the bill died because Suglick didn't call it down to the floor. Uh, on the same day that in, in 11 states, including here in Indiana, Jewish community centers were evacuated because of bomb threats. Isn't that case in point why something like this is needed? Well, certainly proponents of this legislation had plenty to point to. If you look at a study, for instance, done by the Southern Poverty Law Center in the wake of the election, 
all sorts of minority groups uh, on the left and the right were targeted uh, by what appeared to be hate-motivated crimes uh, and, and biased crimes. So there was a lot out there. But this, I think, ultimately the challenge this bill faced is what we just talked about a, a few moments ago, which is perception sometimes is a more powerful force than the technicalities of, of a piece of legislation or a law. And in this case, there are a lot of people who believed and still believe that this would could be used to punish or silence pastors, for instance, in their congregations who are who are saying that a homosexual lifestyle is is sinful or that abortion is sinful. When in fact, I mean, that is not the First Amendment would still reign supreme here. This this actually. And this wasn't even, this didn't even, this is unlike some bias crimes bill or hate crimes bills. This is not a new crime. This is just an enhancement Correct. to existing so, crimes. So you could not go in and, and pull somebody out of the pulpit and say, how dare you say mean, you know, hurtful things. That's not what this was about. But again, perception, and that spread around, and that ultimately proved to I be a powerful I want to ask force. about how this bill died. She didn't call it down to the floor for amendments on the day that the, the deadline to do so because there wasn't consensus in, in the caucus. Don't voters deserve to at least know where their elected representatives stand on an issue like this? Shouldn't there, even if it's going to die, shouldn't there be votes on this sort of stuff? Well, I mean, th these sorts of things happen all the time in the legislature. If, if, you, if the bill is not going to make it out, then if there's not a consensus, then the decision typically is to hold it and wait until potentially you have another shot at it. You know, this is a, it's a difficult issue, and, uh, and it's something that's, subjective, right? So we're talking about adding enhancements based on what someone was thinking. And it's, it's a tough issue, um, maybe across party lines, but certainly within the Republican Party, I think it's, it's a challenge. And I guess I'm not terribly surprised to see that it isn't going forward at this time. Shouldn't we at well, least have seen a vote? Yeah, we should have seen a vote, and, and it's not that tough an issue because 45 other states have one. Um, and so I think that uh, while Jennifer, I think, is doing a nice job of defending her party on it, it's it's an outrage that the state of Indiana is one of only five, and it's another black mark on the state of Indiana in, on the heels of RIFRA that we can't pass a hate crimes uh, a bill. Uh, we'd never know an economic development, the pain, the pain it actually causes, but we're still feeling the effects of RIFRA. Folks find out that we're only one of five states that don't have a hate crime bill. It, it does hurt economic development. It doesn't help when we try to sell ourselves to the rest of the country that we can't even pass a hate crimes law. Uh, legislation to mandate a late August start date for all Indiana schools failed on the Senate floor this week. The bill from Senate Republican Gene Lysing would require all schools to start their year no sooner than the last Monday in August. That comes as some school districts have started earlier and earlier in recent years, some as early as July. Lysing says businesses and the tourism industry support her measure, saying they're worried about a lack of summer workers and a downturn in revenue at places like Holiday World because of curtailed summer vacations. Opponents of the measure say start dates should be a local decision. The vote on the bill was 25 to 25. And with Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch not at session that day because of a death in the family, the tie couldn't be broken and the bill failed. Jennifer Hollowell, should all Hoosier schools start at roughly the same time? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, I think that Senator Lysing, first of all, Senator Lysing does a very nice job of representing her constituents, and I think that's what you've seen here. Um, it'd be like, Mr. Obvious, for me to tell you that there is a great divide, 25 to 25. But... I tend to favor local control because, you know, our school boards, uh, the vast majority across the state are elected. 
And there are parents who like and really prefer a balanced calendar, yeah. and there are those who don't. And so I think that locally you get the you get a greater opportunity to voice your decision. Is this fundamentally the urban-rural divide? I don't know. I think it's an abomination. Kids have to go to school before sept- before September. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a personal opinion of mine. Uh, you know, some let summer be summer. Um, you know, I, I, I don't come down either way. There's, I don't think it's a political issue. I think it, it divides uh, across yeah. uh, different ways. I think really it does have a negative impact on tourism in the state. I know yeah. that the, the place down in Santa Claus has trouble because yeah, August they, they can't do it. Finally, this week marked the end of the 2017 legislative session's first half as bills cleared their original houses. Kip, two, what grade would you give lawmakers at halftime? Incomplete. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> uh, you know, that they got the budget out of the House. They're supposed to do it. It got out of the House. Uh, what I was a little surprised at is that there are social issues that have come to the fore again. They waited the budgets to pass, and we had two abortion bills that are um, uh, uh, pretty out there um, that, are, that have passed uh, both houses. So I think it's an incomplete for sure. Jennifer Hollowell? I like that answer. I'll go with a solid A-. minus. <laughs> a solid A-. minus. Uh, I'd say... Uh, B range. Uh, it did sort of the tenor did change a little bit from the first half of the, let's say the first quarter to the second quarter yeah. uh, for the reasons Kip mentioned. I think it's a B. I was surprised by how quickly it seemed to go. And it did go with, you know, the minor exceptions noted here so far, fairly much like clockwork. And mm-hmm. I think that's what leadership wanted. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Kip Two, Republican Jennifer Hollowell, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.